Welcome to John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 7, Section 16. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 16. But shortly after, John, who in the time of Gregory presided over the church of Constantinople, went so far as to say that he was universal patriarch. Here Gregory, that he might not be wanting to his see any most excellent cause, constantly opposed. And certainly it was impossible to tolerate the pride and madness of John, who wished to make the limits of his bishopric equal to the limits of the empire. This, which Gregory denies to another, he claims not for himself, but abominates the title by whomsoever used as wicked, impious, and nefarious. Nay, he is offended with Eulogius, bishop of Alexandria, who had honored him with this title. Quote, See, in the address of the letter which you have directed to me, though I prohibited you, you have taken care to write a word of proud signification by calling me universal pope. What I ask is that your holiness do not go farther, because whatever is given to another more than reason demands is withdrawn from you. I do not regard that as honor by which I see that the honor of my brethren is diminished. For my honor is the universal honor of the church, and entire prerogative of my brethren. If your holiness calls me universal pope, it denies itself to be this whole which it acknowledges me to be." Unquote. The cause of Gregory was indeed good and honorable, but John, aided by the favor of the emperor Maurice, could not be dissuaded from his purpose. Syriac also, his successor, never allowed himself to be spoken to on the subject. Section 17. At length, Phocas, who had slain Maurice and usurped his place, more friendly to the Romans for what reason I know not, or rather because he had been crowned king there without opposition, conceded to Boniface III what Gregory by no means demanded, viz. that Rome should be the head of all the churches. In this way the controversy was ended, and yet this kindness of the emperor to the Romans would not have been of very much avail had not other circumstances occurred. For shortly after Greece and all Asia were cut off from his communion, while all the reverence which he received from France was obedience only insofar as she pleased. She was brought into subjection for the first time when Pepin got possession of the throne. For Zachary, the Roman pontiff, having aided him in his perfidy and robbery, when he expelled the lawful sovereign and seized upon the kingdom, which lay exposed as a kind of prey, was rewarded by having the jurisdiction of the Roman see established over the churches of France. In the same way as robbers are wont to divide and share the common spoil, those two worthies arranged that Pepin should have the worldly and civil power by spoiling the true prince, while Zachary should become the head of all the bishops and have the spiritual power. This, though weak at the first, as usually happens with new power, was afterwards confirmed by the authority of Charlemagne for a very similar cause, for he too was under obligation to the Roman pontiff, to whose zeal he was indebted for the honor of empire. Though there is reason to believe that the churches had previously been greatly altered, it is certain that the ancient form of the church was then only completely effaced in Gaul and Germany. There are still extant among the archives of the Parliament of Paris short commentaries on those times, which, in treating of ecclesiastical affairs, make mention of the compacts both of Pepin and Charlemagne with the Roman pontiff. Hence we may infer that the ancient state of matters was then changed. Section 18. From that time, while everywhere matters were becoming daily worse, the tyranny of the Roman bishop was established and ever and anon increased, and this partly by the ignorance, partly by the sluggishness of the bishops. For while he was arrogating everything to himself, and proceeding more and more to exalt himself without measure, contrary to law and right, the bishops did not exert themselves so zealously as they ought in curbing his pretensions. 
and though they had not been deficient in spirit, they were devoid of true doctrine and experience, so that they were by no means fit for so important an effort. Accordingly, we see how great and monstrous was the profanation of all sacred things, and the dissipation of the whole ecclesiastical order at Rome in the age of Bernard. He complains that the ambitious, avaricious, demoniacal, sacrilegious, fornicators, incestuous, and similar miscreants flocked from all quarters of the world to Rome, that by apostolic authority they might acquire or retain ecclesiastical honors, that fraud, circumvention, and violence prevailed. The mode of judging causes then in use he describes as execrable, as disgraceful, not only to the church, but the bar. He exclaims that the church is filled with the ambitious, that not one is more afraid to perpetuate crimes than robbers in their den when they share the spoils of the traveler. Quote, few, says he, look to the mouth of the legislator, but all to his hands, not without cause, however, for their hands do the whole business of the pope. What kind of thing is it when those are bought by the spoils of the church who say to you, Well done, well done? The life of the poor is sown in the highways of the rich. Silver glitters in the mire. They run together from all sides. It is not the poor that takes it up, but the stronger, or perhaps he who runs fastest. That custom, however, or rather that death, comes not of you. I wish it would end in you. While these things are going on, you, a pastor, come forth robed in much costly clothing. If I might presume to say it, this is more the pasture of demons than of sheep. Peter, forsooth, acted thus. Paul sported thus. Your court has been more accustomed to receive good men than to make them. The bad do not gain much there, but the good degenerate." Unquote. Then, when he describes the abuses of appeals, no pious man can read them without being horrified. At length, speaking of the unbridled cupidity of the Roman See in usurping jurisdiction, he thus concludes, quote, I express the murmur and common complaint of the churches. Their cry is that they are maimed and dismembered. There are none or very few who do not lament or fear that plague. Do you ask what plague? Abbots are encroached upon by bishops, bishops by archbishops, etc. It is strange if this can be excused. By thus acting you prove that you have the fullness of power, but not the fullness of righteousness. You do this because you are able. But whether you also ought to do it is the question. You are appointed to preserve, not to envy, the honor and rank of each." Unquote. I have thought it proper to quote these few passages out of many, partly that my readers may see how grievously the church had then fallen, partly too that they may see with what grief and lamentation all pious men beheld this calamity. Section 19 that though we were to concede to the Roman pontiff of the present day the eminence and extent of jurisdiction which his see had in the Middle Ages, as in the time of Leo and Gregory, what would this be to the existing papacy? I am not now speaking of worldly dominion or of civil power, which will afterwards be explained in their own place. See chapter 11, sections 8-14. through 14. But what resemblance is there between the spiritual government of which they boast and the state of those times? The only definition which they give of the Pope is that he is the supreme head of the church on earth and the universal bishop of the whole globe. The pontiffs themselves, when they speak of their authority, declare with great superciliousness that the power of commanding belongs to them, that the necessity of obedience remains with others, that all their decrees are to be regarded as confirmed by the divine voice of Peter, that provincial synods from not having the presence of the Pope are deficient in authority that they can ordain the clergy of any church, and can summon to their see any who have been ordained elsewhere. Innumerable things of this kind are contained in the Farrago of Gratian, which I do not mention that I may not be tedious to my readers. The whole comes to this, that to the Roman pontiff belongs the supreme cognizance of all ecclesiastical causes, whether in determining and defining doctrines, or in enacting laws, or in appointing discipline, or in giving sentences. It were also tedious and superfluous to review the privileges which they assume to themselves in what they call reservations. But the most intolerable of all things is their leaving no judicial authority in the world to restrain and curb them when they licentiously abuse their immense power. Quote, no man, say they, is entitled to alter the judgment of the sea on account of the primacy of the Roman Church. Unquote. Again, Quote, the judge shall not be judged either by the emperor, or by kings, or by the clergy, or by the people. Unquote. It is surely imperious enough for one man to appoint himself the judge of all, while he will not submit to the judgment of any. 
But what if he tyrannizes over the people of God, if he dissipates and lays waste the kingdom of Christ, if he troubles the whole church, if he convert the pastoral office into robbery? Nay, though he should be the most abandoned of all, he insists that none can call him to account. The language of Pontus is, quote, God has been pleased to terminate the causes of other men by men, but the prelate of this see he has reserved unquestioned for his own judgment, unquote. Again, quote, the deeds of subjects are judged by us, ours by God only, unquote. Section 20. And in order that edicts of this kind might have more weight, they falsely substituted the names of ancient pontiffs, as if matters had been so constituted from the beginning, while it is absolutely certain that whatever attributes more to the pontiff than we have stated to have been given to him by ancient councils is new and of recent fabrication. Nay, they have carried their effrontery so far as to publish a rescript under the name of Anastasius, the Patriarch of Constantinople, in which he testifies that it was appointed by ancient regulations, that nothing should be done in the remotest provinces without being previously referred to the Roman See. Besides its extreme folly, who can believe it credible that such an eulogium on the Roman See proceeded from an opponent and rival of its honor and dignity? But doubtless it was necessary that those antichrists should proceed to such a degree of madness and blindness that their iniquity might be manifest to all men of sound mind who will only open their eyes. The decretal epistles collected by Gregory the Ninth, also the Clementines and the extravagance of Martin, breathe still more plainly and in more bombastic terms bespeak this boundless ferocity and tyranny, as it were, of barbarian kings. But these are the oracles out of which the Romanists would have their papacy to be judged. Hence have sprung those famous axioms which have the force of oracles throughout the papacy in present day, viz., that the Pope cannot err, that the Pope is superior to councils, that the Pope is the universal bishop of all churches and the chief head of the church on earth. I say nothing of the still greater absurdities which are babbled by the foolish canonists in their schools, absurdities, however, which Roman theologians not only assent to, but even applaud in flattery of their idol. Section 21 I will not treat with them on the strictest terms. In opposition to their great insolence, some would quote the language which Cyprian used to the bishops and the council over which he presided. Quote, None of us styles himself bishop of bishops, or forces his colleagues to the necessity of obeying by the tyranny of terror. Unquote. Some might object what was long after decreed at Carthage. Quote, Let no one be called the prince of priests, our first bishop. Unquote and might gather many proofs from history and canons from councils, and many passages from ancient writers which bring the Roman pontiff into due order. But these I omit, that I may not seem to press too hard upon them. However, let these worthy defenders of the Roman see tell me with what faith they can defend the title of universal bishop, while they see it so often anathematized by Gregory. If effect is to be given to his testimony, then they, by making their pontiff universal, declare him to be Antichrist. The name of Head was not more approved, for Gregory thus speaks, quote, Peter was the chief member in the body, John, Andrew, and James the heads of particular communities. All, however, are under one head members of the church, nay, the saints before the law, the saints under the law, the saints under grace, all perfecting the body of the Lord, are constituted members. None of them ever wish to be styled universal, unquote. When the pontiff arrogates to himself the power of ordering, he little accords with what Gregory elsewhere says. For Eulogius, bishop of Alexandria, having said that he had received an order from him, he replies in this manner, quote, This word, order, I beg you to take out of my hearing, for I know who I am and who you are. In station you are my brethren, in character my fathers. I therefore did not order, but took care to suggest what seemed useful, unquote. When the Pope extends his jurisdiction without limit, he does great and atrocious injustice not only to other bishops, but to each single church, tearing and dismembering them, that he may build his see upon their ruins. When he exempts himself from all tribunals and wishes to reign in the manner of a tyrant, holding his own caprice to be his only law, the thing is too insulting and too foreign to ecclesiastical rule to be on any account submitted to. It is altogether abhorrent, not only from pious feeling, but also from common sense. Section 22. But that I may not be forced to discuss and follow out each point singly, I again appeal to those who, in the present day, would be thought the best and most faithful defenders of the Roman See, 
whether they are not ashamed to defend the existing state of the papacy, which is clearly a hundred times more corrupt than in the days of Gregory and Bernard, though even then these holy men were so much displeased with it. Gregory everywhere complains that he was distracted above measure by foreign occupations, that under color of the episcopate he was taken back to the world, being subject to more worldly cares than he remembered to have ever had when a lake, that he was so oppressed by the trouble of secular affairs as to be unable to raise his mind to things above, that he was so tossed by the many billows of causes and afflicted by the tempests of a tumultuous life that he might well say, quote, I am come into the depths of the sea, unquote. It is certain that amid these worldly occupations he could teach the people in sermons, admonish in private, and correct those who required it, order the church, give counsel to his colleagues, and exhort them to their duty. Moreover, some time was left for writing, and yet he deplores it as his calamity, that he was plunged into the very deepest sea. If the administration of that time was a sea, what shall we say of the present papacy? For what resemblance is there between the periods? Now there are no sermons, no care for discipline, no zeal for churches, no spiritual function, nothing in short but the world. And yet this labyrinth is lauded as if nothing could be found better ordered and arranged. What complaints also does Bernard pour forth? What groans does he utter when he beholds the vices of his own age? What then would he have done on beholding this iron, or if possible worse than iron, age of ours? How dishonest, therefore, not only obstinately to defend as sacred and divine what all the saints have always with one mouth disapproved, but to abuse their testimony in favor of the papacy, which, it is evident, was altogether unknown to them. Although I admit, in respect to the time of Bernard, that all things were so corrupt as to make it not unlike our own, but it betrays a want of all sense of shame to seek any excuse from that middle period, namely from that of Leo, Gregory, and the like, for it is just as if one were to vindicate the monarchy of the Caesars by lauding the ancient state of the Roman Empire, in other words, were to borrow the praises of liberty in order to eulogize tyranny. Section 23 Lastly, although these things were granted, an entirely new question arises when we deny that there is at Rome a church in which privileges of this nature can reside, when we deny that there is a bishop to sustain the dignity of these privileges. Assume, therefore, that all these things are true, though we have already extorted the contrary from them that Peter was, by the words of Christ, constituted head of the universal church, and that the honor thus conferred upon him he deposited in the Roman see, that this was sanctioned by the authority of the ancient church, and confirmed by long use. That supreme power was always with one consent devolved by all on the Roman pontiff, that while he was the judge of all causes and all men, he was subject to the judgment of none. Let even more be conceded to them, if they will, I answer in one word, that none of these things avail if there be not a church and a bishop at Rome. They must of necessity concede to me that she is not a mother of churches who is not herself a church, that he cannot be the chief of bishops who is not himself a bishop. Would they then have the apostolic see at Rome? Let them give me a true and lawful apostleship. Would they have a supreme pontiff? Let them give me a bishop. But how? Where will they show me any semblance of a church? They, no doubt, talk of one, and have it ever in their mouths. But surely the church is recognized by certain marks, and bishopric is the name of an office. I am not now speaking of the people, but of the government, which ought perpetually to be conspicuous in the church. Where, then, is a ministry such as the institution of Christ requires? Let us remember what was formerly said of the duty of presbyters and bishops. If we bring the office of cardinals to that test, we will acknowledge that they are nothing less than presbyters. But I should like to know what one quality of a bishop the Pope himself has. The first point in the office of a bishop is to instruct the people in the word of God. The second and next to it is to administer the sacraments. The third is to admonish and exhort to correct those who are in fault and restrain the people by holy discipline. Which of these things does he do? Nay, which of these things does he pretend to do? Let them say, then, on what ground they will have him to be regarded as a bishop, who does not even in semblance touch any part of the duty with his little finger. Section 24. It is not with a bishop as with a king. The latter, though he does not execute the proper duty of a king, nevertheless retains the title and the honor. But in deciding on a bishop, respect is had to the command of Christ, to which effect ought always to be given in the church. Let the Romanists then untie this knot. I deny that their pontiff is the prince of bishops, seeing he is no bishop. This allegation of mine they must prove to be false if they would succeed in theirs. What, then, do I maintain? 
that he has nothing proper to a bishop, but is in all things the opposite of a bishop. But with what shall I here begin? With doctrine, or with morals? What shall I say, or what shall I pass in silence? Or where shall I end? This I maintain. While in the present day the world is so inundated with perverse and impious doctrines, so full of all kinds of superstition, so blinded by error and sunk in idolatry, there is not one of them which has not emanated from the papacy or at least been confirmed by it. Nor is there any other reason why the pontiffs are so enraged against the reviving doctrine of the gospel, why they stretch every nerve to oppress it, and urge all kings and princes to cruelty, than just that they see their whole dominion tottering and falling to pieces the moment the gospel of Christ prevails. Leo was cruel, and Clement sanguinary. Paul is truculent. But in assailing the truth, it is not so much natural temper that impels them as the conviction that they have no other method of maintaining their power. Therefore, seeing that they cannot be safe unless they put Christ to flight, they labor in this cause as if they were fighting for their altars and hearts, for their own lives and those of their adherents. What then? Shall we recognize the apostolic see where we see nothing but horrible apostasy? Shall he be the vicar of Christ who, by his furious efforts in persecuting the gospel, plainly declares himself to be Antichrist? Shall he be the successor of Peter who goes about with fire and sword demolishing everything that Peter built? Shall he be the head of the church who, after dissevering the church from Christ, her only true head, tears and lacerates her members? Rome, indeed, was once the mother of all the churches, but since she began to be the seed of Antichrist, she ceased to be what she was. Section 25. To some we seem slanderous and petulant when we call the Roman pontiff Antichrist, but those who think so perceive not that they are bringing a charge of intemperance against Paul, after whom we speak, nay, in whose very words we speak. But lest any one object that Paul's words have a different meaning, and are wrested by us against the Roman pontiff, I will briefly show that they can only be understood of the papacy. Paul says that Antichrist would sit in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. In another passage, the spirit portraying him in the person of Antiochus says that his reign would be with great swelling words of vanity, Daniel 7, verse 25. Hence we infer that his tyranny is more over souls than bodies, a tyranny set up in opposition to the spiritual kingdom of Christ. Then his nature is such that he abolishes not the name either of Christ or of the church, but rather uses the name of Christ as a pretext, and lurks under the name of church as under a mask. But though all the heresies and schisms which have existed from the beginning belong to the kingdom of Antichrist, yet when Paul foretells that defection will come, he by the description intimates that that seed of abomination will be erected when a kind of universal defection comes upon the church, though many members of the church scattered up and down should continue in the true unity of the faith. But when he adds that in his own time the mystery of iniquity, which was afterwards to be openly manifested, had begun to work in secret, we thereby understand that this calamity was neither to be introduced by one man, nor to terminate in one man. See Calvin in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3, and Daniel 7, verse 9. Moreover, when the mark by which he distinguishes Antichrist is that he would rob God of his honor and take it to himself, he gives the leading feature which we ought to follow in searching out Antichrist especially when pride of this description proceeds to the open devastation of the church. Seeing then, it is certain that the Roman pontiff has impudently transferred to himself the most peculiar properties of God and Christ, there cannot be a doubt that he is the leader and standard-bearer of an impious and abominable kingdom. Section 26. Let the Romanists now go and oppose us with antiquity, as if, amid such a complete change in every respect, the honor of the sea can continue where there is no sea. Eusebius says that God, to make way for his vengeance, transferred the church which was at Jerusalem to Pella. What we are told was once done may have been done repeatedly. Hence it is too absurd and ridiculous so to fix the honor of the primacy to a particular spot, as that he who is in fact the most inveterate enemy of Christ, the chief adversary of the gospel, the greatest devastator and waster of the church, the most cruel slayer and murderer of the saints, should be nevertheless regarded as the vicegerent of Christ, the successor of Peter, the first priest of the church, merely because he occupies what was formerly the first of all seas. I do not say how great the difference is between the chancery of the Pope and well-regulated order in the church, although this one fact might well set the question at rest. For no one man of sound mind will include the episcopate in lead and bulls, much less in that administration of captions and circumscriptions in which the spiritual government of the Pope is supposed to consist.
It has therefore been elegantly said that that vaunted Roman church was long ago converted into a temporal court, the only thing which is now seen at Rome. I am not here speaking of the vices of individuals, but demonstrating that the papacy itself is diametrically opposed to the ecclesiastical system. Section 27. But if we come to individuals, it is well known what kind of vicars of Christ we shall find. No doubt, Julius and Leo, and Clement and Paul, will be pillars of the Christian faith, the first interpreters of religion, though they knew nothing more of Christ than they had learned in the school of Lucian. But why give the names of three or four pontiffs, as if there were any doubt as to the kind of religion professed by pontiffs with their college of cardinals and professors in the present day? The first head of the secret theology which is in vogue among them is that there is no God. Another that whatever things have been written and are taught concerning Christ are lies and imposture. A third that the doctrine of a future life and final resurrection is a mere fable. All do not think, few speak thus. I confess it. Yet it is long since this began to be the ordinary religion of pontiffs, and though the thing is notorious to all who know Rome, Roman theologians cease not to boast that by special privilege our Savior has provided that the Pope cannot err, because it was said to Peter, quote, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, unquote. Luke 22, verse 32. What prey do they gain by their effrontery, but to let the whole world understand that they have reached the extreme of wickedness, so as neither to fear God, nor regard man? Section 28. But let us suppose that the iniquity of these pontiffs whom I have mentioned is not known, as they have not published it either in sermons or writings, but betrayed it only at table, or in their chamber, or at least within the walls of their court. But if they would have the privilege which they claim to be confirmed, they must expunge from their list of pontiffs John 22, who publicly maintain that the soul is mortal, and perishes with the body till the day of resurrection. And to show you that the whole sea, with its chief props, then utterly fell, none of the cardinals opposed his madness. Only the faculty of Paris urged the king to insist on a recantation. The king interdicted his subjects from communion with him, unless he would immediately recant, and published his interdict in the usual way by a herald. Thus necessitated, he abjured his error. This example relieves me from the necessity of disputing further with my opponents, when they say that the Roman See and its pontiffs cannot err in the faith from its being said to Peter, quote, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, unquote. Certainly by this shameful lapse he fell from the faith and became a noted proof to posterity that all are not Peters who succeed Peter in the episcopate. Although the thing is too childish in itself to need an answer, for if they insist on applying everything that was said to Peter to the successors of Peter, it will follow that they are all Satans, because our Lord once said to Peter, quote, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. Unquote. It is as easy for us to retort the latter saying as for them to adduce the former. Section 29. But I have no pleasure in this absurd mode of disputation, and therefore return to the point from which I digressed. To fix down Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Church to a particular spot so that everyone who presides in it, should he be a devil, must still be deemed vicegerent of Christ and the head of the Church, because that spot was formerly the See of Peter, is not only impious and insulting to Christ, but absurd and contrary to common sense. For a long period the Roman pontiffs have either been altogether devoid of religion, or been its greatest enemies. The See which they occupy, therefore, no more makes them the vicars of Christ than it makes an idol to become God when it is placed in the temple of God. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Then, if manners be inquired into, let the popes answer for themselves what there is in them that can make them be recognized for bishops. First, the mode of life at Rome, while they not only connive and are silent, but also tacitly approve, is altogether unworthy of bishops whose duty it is to curb the license of the people by the strictness of discipline. But I will not be so rigid with them as to charge them with the faults of others. But when they, with their household, with almost the whole college of cardinals and the whole body of their clergy, are so devoted to wickedness, obscenity, uncleanness, iniquity, and crime of every description, that they resemble monsters more than men, they herein betray that they are nothing less than bishops. They need not fear that I will make a farther disclosure of their turpitude, for it is painful to wade through such filthy mire, and I must spare modest ears." But I think I have amply demonstrated what I proposed, viz., that though Rome was formerly the first of churches, she deserves not in the present day to be regarded as one of her minutest members. Section 30. In regard to those whom they call cardinals, I know not how it happened that they rose so suddenly to such a height. In the age of Gregory the name was applied to bishops only, for whenever he makes mention of cardinals, he assigns them not only to the Roman church, but to every other church, so that in short a cardinal priest is nothing else than a bishop. 
I do not find the name among the writers of a former age. I see, however, that they were inferior to bishops, whom they now far surpass. There is a well-known passage in Augustine, quote, Although in regard to the terms of honor which custom was fixed in the church, the office of bishop is greater than that of presbyter, yet in many things Augustine is inferior to Jerome, unquote. Here certainly he is not distinguishing a presbyter of the Roman church from other presbyters, but placing all of them alike after bishops. And so strictly was this observed that at the council of Carthage, when two legates of the Roman see were present, one a bishop and the other a presbyter, the latter was put in the lowest place. But not to dwell too much on ancient times, we have account of a council held at Rome under Gregory, at which the presbyters sit in the lowest place, and subscribe by themselves, while deacons do not subscribe at all. And indeed they had no office at that time unless to be present under the bishop and assist him in the administration of word and sacraments. So much is their lot now changed that they have become associates of kings and Caesars. And there can be no doubt that they have grown gradually with their head until they reach their present pinnacle of dignity. This much it seemed proper to say in passing that my readers may understand how very widely the Roman see, as it now exists, differs from the ancient see, under which it endeavors to cloak and defend itself. But whatever they were formerly, as they have no true and legitimate office in the church, they only retain a color and empty mask. Nay, as they are in all respects the opposite of true ministers, the thing which Gregory so often writes must of necessity have befallen them. His words are, quote, Weeping, I say, groaning, I declare it. When the sacerdotal order has fallen within, it cannot long stand without, unquote. Nay, rather, what Malachi says of such persons must be fulfilled in them. Quote, ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people. Unquote. Malachi 2, verses 8 and 9. I now leave all the pious to judge what the supreme pinnacle of the Roman hierarchy must be, to which the papists, with nefarious effrontery, hesitate not to subject the word of God itself, that word which should be venerable and holy in earth and heaven to men and angels. Chapter 8 Of the Power of the Church in Articles of Faith The Unbridled License of the Papal Church in Destroying Purity of Doctrine There are sixteen sections. Section 1 we come now to the third division, viz. the power of the church as existing either in individual bishops or in councils, whether provincial or general. I speak only of the spiritual power which is proper to the church, and which consists either in doctrine or jurisdiction or in enacting laws. In regard to doctrine, there are two divisions, viz. the authority of delivering dogmas and the interpretation of them. Before we begin to treat of each in particular, I wish to remind the pious reader that whatever is taught respecting the power of the church ought to have reference to the end for which Paul declares, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 8, and 13, verse 10, that it was given, namely, for edification and not for destruction, those who use it lawfully deeming themselves to be nothing more than servants of Christ and, at the same time, servants of the people in Christ. Moreover, the only mode by which ministers can edify the church is by studying to maintain the authority of Christ, which cannot be unimpaired unless that which he received of the Father is left to him, viz. to be the only master of the church. For it was not said of any other, but of himself alone, quote, hear him, unquote, Matthew 17, verse 5. Ecclesiastical power, therefore, is not to be mischievously adorned, but it is to be confined within certain limits, so as not to be drawn hither and thither at the caprice of men. For this purpose it will be of great use to observe how it is described by prophets and apostles. For if we concede unreservedly to men all the power which they think proper to assume, it is easy to see how soon it will degenerate into a tyranny which is altogether alien from the Church of Christ. Section 2. Therefore it is here necessary to remember that whatever authority and dignity the Holy Spirit in Scripture confers on priests, our prophets, our apostles, our successors of apostles, is wholly given not to men themselves, but to the ministry to which they are appointed, or, to speak more plainly, to the word, to the ministry of which they are appointed. For were we to go over the whole in order, we should find that they were not invested with authority to teach or give responses, save in the name and word of the Lord. For whenever they are called to office, they are enjoined not to bring anything of their own, but to speak by the mouth of the Lord." nor does he bring them forward to be heard by the people, before he has instructed them what they are to speak, lest they should speak anything but his own word. Moses, the prince of all the prophets, was to be heard in preference to others, Exodus 3, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 17, verse 9. But he is previously furnished with his orders, that he may not be able to speak at all except from the Lord. 
Accordingly, when the people embraced his doctrine, they are said to have believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Exodus 14, verse 31. It was also provided under the severest sanctions that the authority of the priest should not be despised. Exodus 17, verse 9. But the Lord at the same time shows in what terms they were to be heard when he says that he made his covenant with Levi that the law of truth might be in his mouth. Malachi 2, verses 4 through 6. A little after he adds, quote, The priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Unquote. Therefore, if the priest would be heard, let him show himself to be the messenger of God, that is, let him faithfully deliver the commands which he has received from his Maker. When the mode of hearing then is treated of, it is expressly said, quote, According to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee. Unquote. Deuteronomy 17, verse 11. Section 3. The nature of the power conferred upon the prophets in general is elegantly described by Ezekiel. Quote, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth, and give them warning from me. Unquote. Ezekiel 3, verse 17. Is not he who is ordered to hear at the mouth of the Lord prohibited from devising anything of himself? And what is meant by giving a warning from the Lord, but just to speak so as to be able confidently to declare that the word which he delivers is not his own, but the Lord's? The same thing is expressed by Jeremiah in different terms. Quote, the prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. Unquote. Jeremiah 23, verse 28. Surely God here declares the law to all, and it is a law which does not allow anyone to teach more than he has been ordered. He afterwards gives the name of chaff to whatever has not proceeded from himself alone. Accordingly, none of the prophets opened his mouth unless preceded by the word of the Lord. Hence we so often meet with the expressions, quote, The word of the Lord, the burden of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it, unquote. And justly, for Isaiah explains that his lips are unclean, Isaiah 6, verse 5. And Jeremiah confesses that he knows not how to speak because he is a child, Jeremiah 1, verse 6. Could anything proceed from the unclean lips of the one and the childish lips of the other if they spoke their own language but what was unclean or childish? But their lips were holy and pure when they began to be organs of the Holy Spirit. The prophets, after being thus strictly bound not to deliver anything but what they received, are invested with great power and illustrious titles. For when the Lord declares, quote, See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms, to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant, unquote. He at the same time gives the reason, quote, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth, unquote. Jeremiah 1, verses 9 and 10. Section 4. Now, if you look to the apostles, they are commended by many distinguished titles as the light of the world and the salt of the earth to be heard in Christ's stead, whatever they bound or loosed on earth being bound or loosed in heaven. Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14, Luke 10, verse 16, and John 20, verse 23. But they declare in their own name what the authority was which their office conferred on them. These, if they are apostles, they must not speak their own pleasure, but faithfully deliver the commands of him by whom they are sent. The words in which Christ defined their embassy are sufficiently clear. Quote, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Unquote. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Nay, that none might be permitted to decline this law, he received it and imposed it on himself. Quote, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Unquote. John 7, verse 16. He who always was the only and eternal counselor of the Father, who by the Father was constituted Lord and Master of all, yet because he performed the ministry of teaching, prescribed to all ministers by his example the rule which they ought to follow in teaching. The power of the church, therefore, is not infinite, but is subject to the word of the Lord, and as it were, included in it. Section 5. But though the rule which always existed in the church from the beginning and ought to exist in the present day is that the servants of God are only to teach what they have learned from himself, yet, according to the variety of times, they have had different methods of learning. The mode which now exists differs very much from that of former times. First, if it is true, as Christ says, quote, Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him, unquote, Matthew 11, verse 27, then those who wish to attain to the knowledge of God behoved always to be directed by that eternal wisdom. 
For how could they have comprehended the mysteries of God in their mind, or declared them to others unless by the teaching of him to whom alone the secrets of the Father are known? The only way, therefore, by which in ancient times holy men knew God, was by beholding him in the Son as in a mirror. When I say this, I mean that God never manifested himself to men by any other means than by his Son, that is, his own only wisdom, light, and truth. From this fountain, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others drew all the heavenly doctrine which they possessed. From the name fountain, all the prophets also drew all the heavenly oracles which they published. For this wisdom did not always display itself in one manner. With the patriarchs he employed secret revelations, but at the same time, in order to confirm these, had recourse to signs so as to make it impossible for them to doubt that it was God that spake to them. What the patriarchs received, they handed down to posterity, for God had, in depositing it with them, bound them thus to propagate it, while their children and descendants knew by the inward teaching of God that what they heard was of heaven and not of earth. Section 6. But when God determined to give a more illustrious form to the church, he was pleased to commit and consign his word to writing that the priests might there seek what they were to teach the people and every doctrine delivered to be brought to it as a test. Malachi 2, verse 7. Accordingly, after the promulgation of the law, when the priests are enjoined to teach from the mouth of the Lord, the meaning is that they are not to teach anything extraneous or alien to that kind of doctrine which God had summed up in the law, while it was unlawful for them to add to it or take from it. Next followed the prophets, by whom God published the new oracles which were added to the law, not so new, however, but that they flowed from the law and had respect to it. For insofar as regards doctrine, they were only interpreters of the law, adding nothing to it but predictions of future events. With this exception, all that they delivered was pure exposition of the law. But as the Lord was pleased that doctrine should exist in a clearer and more ample form, the better to satisfy weak consciences, he commanded the prophecies also to be committed to writing and to be held part of his word. To these at the same time were added historical details which are also the composition of prophets, but dictated by the Holy Spirit. I include the Psalms among the prophecies, the quality which we attribute to the latter belonging also to the former. The whole body, therefore, composed of the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and histories, formed the word of the Lord to his ancient people, and by it, as a standard, priests and teachers before the advent of Christ, were bound to test their doctrine, nor was it lawful for them to turn aside either to the right hand or the left, because their whole office was confined to this, to give responses to the people from the mouth of God. This is gathered from a celebrated passage of Malachi, in which it is enjoined to remember the law and give heed to it until the preaching of the gospel. Malachi 4, verse 4. For he thus restrains men from all adventitious doctrines, and does not allow them to deviate in the least from the path which Moses had faithfully pointed out. And the reason why David so magnificently extols the law and pronounces so many encomiums on it, Psalm 19 and 119, was that the Jews might not long after any extraneous aid, all perfection being included in it. Section 7. But when at length the wisdom of God was manifested in the flesh, he fully unfolded to us all that the human mind can comprehend or ought to think of the Heavenly Father. Now, therefore, since Christ, the Son of Righteousness, has arisen, we have the perfect refulgence of divine truth, like the brightness of noonday, whereas the light was previously dim. It was no ordinary blessing which the Apostle intended to publish when he wrote, quote, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, unquote. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. For he intimates, nay, openly declares, that God will not henceforth, as formerly, speak by this one and by that one, that he will not add prophecy to prophecy or revelation to revelation, but has so completed all the parts of teaching in the Son that it is to be regarded as his last and eternal testimony. For which reason the whole period of the new dispensation from the time when Christ appeared to us with the preaching of his gospel until the day of judgment is designated by the last hour, the last times, the last days, that contented with the perfection of Christ's doctrine, we may learn to frame no new doctrine for ourselves or admit anyone devised by others. With good cause, therefore, the Father appointed the Son our teacher, with special prerogative commanding that he and no human being should be heard. When he said, quote, hear him, unquote, Matthew 17, verse 5, he commended his office to us in few words indeed, but words of more weight and energy than is commonly supposed. 
For it is just as if he had withdrawn us from all doctrines of man, and confined us to him alone, ordering us to seek the whole doctrine of salvation from him alone, to depend on him alone, and to cleave to him alone, in short, as the words express, to listen only to his voice. And indeed, what can now be expected or desired from man, when the very word of life has appeared before us, and familiarly explained himself? Nay, every mouth should be stopped when once he has spoken, in whom, according to the pleasure of our Heavenly Father, quote, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, unquote. Colossians 2, verse 3. And spoken as became the wisdom of God, which is in no part defective, and the Messiah, from whom the revelation of all things was expected. John 4, verse 25. In other words, has so spoken as to leave nothing to be spoken by others after him. Section 8. Let this then be a sure axiom, that there is no word of God to which place should be given in the church, save that which is contained first in the law and the prophets, and secondly in the writings of the apostles, and that the only due method of teaching in the church is according to the prescription and rule of his word. Hence also we infer that nothing else was permitted to the apostles than was formerly permitted to the prophets, namely, to expound the ancient scriptures and show that the things there delivered are fulfilled in Christ. This, however, they could not do unless from the Lord, that is, unless the Spirit of Christ went before and in a manner dictated words to them. For Christ thus defined the terms of their embassy, when he commanded them to go and teach, not what they themselves had at random fabricated, but whatsoever he had commanded. Matthew 28, verse 20. And nothing can be plainer than his words in another passage. Quote, Be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. Unquote. Matthew 23, verses 8-10. through 10. To impress this more deeply in their minds, he in the same place repeats it twice. And because from ignorance they were unable to comprehend the things which they had heard and learned from the lips of their master, the Spirit of truth is promised to guide them unto all truth. John 14, verse 26, and 16, verse 13. The restriction should be carefully attended to. The office which he assigns to the Holy Spirit is to bring to remembrance what his own lips had previously taught. Section 9. Accordingly, Peter, who was perfectly instructed by his master as to the extent of what was permitted to him, leaves nothing more to himself or others than to dispense the doctrine delivered by God. Quote, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Unquote. 1 Peter 4, verse 11. That is, not hesitatingly, as those are wont whose convictions are imperfect, but with the full confidence which becomes a servant of God provided with a sure message. What else is this than to banish all the inventions of the human mind, whatever be the head which may have devised them, that the pure word of God may be taught and learned in the church of the faithful, than to discard the decrees, or rather fictions of men, whatever be their rank, that the decrees of God alone may remain steadfast. These are, quote, the weapons of our warfare, unquote, which, quote, are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, unquote. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. Here is the supreme power with which pastors of the church, by whatever name they are called, should be invested, namely, to dare all boldly for the word of God, compelling all the virtue, glory, wisdom, and rank of the world, to yield and obey its majesty, to command all from the highest to the lowest, trusting to its power to build up the house of Christ and overthrow the house of Satan, to feed the sheep and chase away the wolves, to instruct and exhort the docile, to accuse, rebuke, and subdue the rebellious and petulant, to bind and loose, and fine, if need be, to fire and fulminate, but all in the word of God. Although, as I have observed, there is this difference between the apostles and their successors, they were sure and authentic amanuenses of the Holy Spirit, and therefore their writings are to be regarded as the oracles of God, whereas others have no other office than to teach what is delivered and sealed in the Holy Scriptures. We conclude, therefore, that it does not now belong to faithful ministers to coin some new doctrine, but simply to adhere to the doctrine to which all, without exception, are made subject. When I say this, I mean to show not only what each individual, but what the whole church is bound to do. In regard to individuals, Paul certainly had been appointed an apostle to the Corinthians, and yet he declares that he has no dominion over their faith. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24 who will now presume to arrogate a dominion to which the apostle declares that he himself was not competent. 
But if he had acknowledged such license in teaching, that every pastor could justly demand implicit faith in whatever he delivered, he never would have laid it down as a rule to the Corinthians, that while two or three prophets spoke, the others should judge, and that if anything was revealed to one sitting by, the first should be silent. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 29 and 30. Thus he spared none, but subjected the authority of all to the censure of the word of God. But it will be said that with regard to the whole church, the case is different. I answer that in another place, Paul meets the objection also when he says that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, verse 17. In other words, if faith depends upon the word of God alone, if it regards and reclines on it alone, what place is left for any word of man? He who knows what faith is can never hesitate here, for it must possess a strength sufficient to stand intrepid and invincible against Satan, the machinations of hell, and the whole world. This strength can be found only in the word of God. Then the reason to which we ought here to have regard is universal. God deprives man of the power of producing any new doctrine, in order that he alone may be our master in spiritual teaching, as he alone is true, and can neither lie nor deceive. This reason applies not less to the whole church than to every individual believer. Section 10. But if this power of the church, which is here described to be contrasted with that which spiritual tyrants, falsely styling themselves bishops and religious prelates, have now for several ages exercised among the people of God, there will be no more agreement than that of Christ with Belial. It is not my intention here to unfold the manner, the unworthy manner, in which they have used their tyranny. I will only state the doctrine which they maintain in the present day, first in writing, and then by fire and sword. Taking it for granted that a universal council is a true representation of the church, they set out with this principle and at the same time lay it down as incontrovertible, that such councils are under the immediate guidance of the Holy Spirit, and therefore cannot err. But as they rule councils, nay, constitute them, they in fact claim for themselves whatever they maintain to be due to councils. Therefore they will have our faith to stand and fall at their pleasure, so that whatever they have determined on either side must be firmly seated in our minds. What they approve must be approved by us without any doubt. What they condemn we also must hold to be justly condemned. Meanwhile, at their own caprice and in contempt of the word of God, they coin doctrines to which they in this way demand our assent, declaring that no man can be a Christian unless he assent to all their dogmas, affirmative as well as negative, if not with explicit, yet with implicit faith, because it belongs to the church to frame new articles of faith. Section 11. First, let us hear by what arguments they prove that this authority was given to the church, and then we shall see how far their allegations concerning the church avail them. The church, they say, has the noble promise that she will never be deserted by Christ her spouse, but be guided by his Spirit into all truth. But of the promises which they are wont to allege, many were given not less to private believers than to the whole church. For although the Lord spake to the twelve apostles when he said, quote, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, unquote, Matthew 28, verse 20, and again, quote, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, unquote. John 14, verses 16 and 17, he made these promises not only to the twelve, but to each of them separately, nay, in like manner to other disciples whom he already had received, or was afterwards to receive. When they interpret these promises, which are replete with consolation in such a way as if they were not given to any particular Christian, but to the whole church together, what else is it but to deprive Christians of the confidence which they ought thence to have derived to animate them in their course? I deny not that the whole body of the faithful is furnished with a manifold variety of gifts, and endued with a far larger and richer treasure of heavenly wisdom than each Christian apart. Nor do I mean that this was said of believers in general as implying that all possess the spirit of wisdom and knowledge in an equal degree that we are not to give permission to the adversaries of Christ to defend a bad cause by wresting Scripture from its proper meaning. Omitting this, however, I simply hold what is true, viz. that the Lord is always present with his people and guides them by his Spirit. He is the Spirit, not of error, ignorance, falsehood, or darkness, but of sure revelation, wisdom, truth, and light, from whom they can, without deception, learn the things which have been given to them. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. In other words, quote, what is the hope of their calling, and what the riches of the glory of their inheritance in the saints, unquote. Ephesians 1, verse 18. 
But while believers, even those of them who are endued with more excellent graces, obtain in the present life only the first fruits, and as it were a foretaste of the Spirit, nothing better remains to them than, under a consciousness of their weakness, to confine themselves anxiously within the limits of the word of God, lest, in following their own sins too far, they forthwith stray from the right path, being left without the Spirit, by whose teaching alone truth is discerned from falsehood. For all confess with Paul that, quote, they have not yet reached the goal, unquote. Philippians 3, verse 12. Accordingly, they rather aim at daily progress than glory and perfection. Section 12. But it will be objected that whatever is attributed in part to any of the saints belongs in complete fullness to the church. Although there is some semblance of truth in this, I deny that it is true. God, indeed, measures out the gifts of His Spirit to each of the members, so that nothing necessary to the whole body is wanting, since the gifts are bestowed for the common advantage. The riches of the church, however, are always of such a nature that much is wanting to that supreme perfection of which our opponents boast. Still, the church is not left destitute in any part, but always has as much as is sufficient for the Lord knows what her necessities require. But to keep her in humility and pious modesty, he bestows no more on her than he knows to be expedient. I am aware it is usual here to object that Christ hath cleansed the church, quote, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, unquote. Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27, and that it is therefore called the, quote, pillar and ground of the truth, unquote. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. But the former passage rather shows what Christ daily performs in it than what he has already perfected. For if he daily sanctifies all his people, purifies, refines them, and wipes away their stains, it is certain that they have still some spots and wrinkles, and that their sanctification is in some measure defective. How vain and fabulous is it to suppose that the church, all whose members are somewhat spotted and impure, is completely holy and spotless in every part. It is true, therefore, that the church is sanctified by Christ, but here the commencement of her sanctification only is seen. The end and entire completion will be effected when Christ, the Holy of Holies, shall truly and completely fill her with his holiness. It is true also that her stains and wrinkles have been effaced, but so that the process is continued every day until Christ, at his advent, will entirely remove every remaining defect. For unless we admit this, we shall be constrained to hold with the Pelagians that the righteousness of believers is perfected in this life, like the Cathari and Donatists, we shall tolerate no infirmity in the church. The other passage, as we have elsewhere seen, chapter 1, section 10, has a very different meaning from what they put upon it. For when Paul instructed Timothy and trained him to the office of a true bishop, he says he did it in order that he might learn how to behave himself in the church of God. And to make him devote himself to the work with greater seriousness and zeal, he adds, that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And what else do these words mean than just that the truth of God is preserved in the church and preserved by the instrumentality of preaching, as he elsewhere says that Christ, quote, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, unquote, quote, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth and love may grow up into him in all things, who is the head, even Christ. Unquote. Ephesians 4, verses 11, 14, and 15. The reason, therefore, why the truth, instead of being extinguished in the world, remains unimpaired is because he has the church as a faithful guardian by whose aid and ministry it is maintained. But if this guardianship consists in the ministry of the prophets and apostles, it follows that the whole depends upon this, viz., that the word of the Lord is faithfully preserved and maintained in purity. Section 13. That my readers may the better understand the hinge on which the question chiefly turns, I will briefly explain what our opponents demand and what we resist. When they deny that the church can err, their end and meaning are to this effect. Since the church is governed by the Spirit of God, she can walk safely without the word. In whatever direction she moves, she cannot think or speak anything but the truth. And hence, if she determines anything without or beside the word of God, it must be regarded in no other light than if it were a divine oracle. If we grant the first point, viz., that the church cannot err in things necessary to salvation, our meaning is that she cannot err because she has altogether discarded her own wisdom and submits to the teaching of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Here, then, is the difference. They place the authority of the church without the word of God. We annex it to the word and allow it not to be separated from it. 
And is it strange if the spouse and pupil of Christ is so subject to her Lord and Master as to hang carefully and constantly on his lips? In every well-ordered house the wife obeys the command of her husband. In every well-regulated school the doctrine of the Master only is listened to. Wherefore, let not the church be wise in herself, nor think anything of herself, but let her consider her wisdom terminated when he ceases to speak. In this way she will distrust all the inventions of her own reason, and when she leans on the word of God will not waver in diffidence or hesitation, but rest in full assurance and unwavering constancy. Trusting to the liberal promises which she has received, she will have the means of nobly maintaining her faith, never doubting that the Holy Spirit is always present with her to be the perfect guide of her path. At the same time, she will remember the use which God wishes to be derived from His Spirit. Quote, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. Unquote. John 16, verse 13. How? Quote, he shall bring to your remembrance all things whatsoever I have said unto you. Unquote. He declares, therefore, that nothing more is to be expected of His Spirit than to enlighten our minds to perceive the truth of His doctrine. Hence, Chrysostom most shrewdly observes, quote, Many boast of the Holy Spirit, but with those who speak their own, it is a false pretense. As Christ declared that he spoke not of himself, John 12, verse 50, and 14, verse 10, because he spoke according to the law and the prophets. So if anything contrary to the gospel is obtruded under the name of the Holy Spirit, let us not believe it. For as Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, so is the Spirit the fulfillment of the gospel, unquote. Thus far, Chrysostom. We may now easily infer how erroneously our opponents act in vaunting of the Holy Spirit, for no other end than to give the credit of his name to strange doctrines extraneous to the Word of God, whereas he himself desires to be inseparably connected with the Word of God, and Christ declares the same thing of him when he promises him to the church. And so indeed it is. The soberness which our Lord once prescribed to his church, he wishes to be perpetually observed. He forbade that anything should be added to his word, and that anything should be taken from it. This is the inviolable decree of God and the Holy Spirit, a decree which our opponents endeavor to annul when they pretend that the church is guided by the Spirit without the word. Section 14. Here again they mutter that the church behoved to add something to the writings of the apostles, or that the apostles themselves behoved orally to supply what they had less clearly taught, since Christ said to them, Quote, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Unquote. John 16, verse 12. And that these are the points which have been received without writing merely by use and custom. But what effrontery is this? The disciples, I admit, were ignorant and almost indocile when our Lord thus addressed them. But were they still in this condition when they committed his doctrine to writings, so as afterwards to be under the necessity of supplying orally that which, through ignorance, they had omitted to write? If they were guided by the spirit of truth unto all truth when they published their writings, what prevented them from embracing a full knowledge of the gospel and consigning it therein? But let us grant them what they ask, provided they point out the things which behoved to be revealed without writing. Should they presume to attempt this, I will address them in the words of Augustine, quote, When the Lord is silent, who of us may say, This is, or that is? Or, if we should presume to say it, how do we prove it? Unquote. But why do I contend superfluously? Every child knows that in the writings of the apostles which these men represent as mutilated and incomplete is contained the result of that revelation which the Lord then promised to them. Section 15. What, say they, did not Christ declare that nothing which the church teaches and decrees can be gainsaid when he enjoined that everyone who presumes to contradict should be regarded as a heathen man and a publican? Matthew 18, verse 17. First, there is here no mention of doctrine, but her authority to censure for correction is asserted in order that none who had been admonished or reprimanded might oppose her judgment. But to say nothing of this, it is very strange that those men are so lost to all sense of shame that they hesitate not to plume themselves on this declaration. For what prey will they make of it, but just that the consent of the church, a consent never given but to the word of God, is not to be despised? The church is to be heard, say they. Who denies this, since she decides nothing but according to the word of God? If they demand more than this, let them know that the words of Christ give them no countenance. I ought not to seem contentious when I so vehemently insist that we cannot concede to the church any new doctrine. In other words, allow her to teach and oracularly deliver more than the Lord had revealed in his word. Men of sense see how great the danger is if so much authority is once conceded to men. They see also how wide a door is opened for the jeers and cavils of the ungodly if we admit that Christians are to receive the opinions of men as if they were oracles. 
We may add that our Savior, speaking according to the circumstances of his times, gave the name of church to the Sanhedrin that the disciples might learn afterwards to revere the sacred meetings of the church. Hence it would follow that single cities and districts would have equal liberty in coining dogmas. Section 16. The examples which they bring do not avail them. They say that paedo-baptism proceeds not so much on a plain command of scripture as on a decree of the church. It would be a miserable asylum if, in defense of paedo-baptism, we were obliged to betake ourselves to the bare authority of the church. But it will be made plain enough elsewhere, in chapter 16, that it is far otherwise. In like manner, when they object that we know where find in the scriptures what was declared in the Council of Nice, viz., that the Son is consubstantial with the Father, they do a grievous injustice to the fathers, as if they had rashly condemned Arius for not swearing to their words, though professing the whole of that doctrine which is contained in the writings of the apostles and prophets. I admit that the expression does not exist in the scripture, but seeing it is there so often declared that there is one God in Christ is so often called the true and eternal God, one with the Father, what do the Nicene Fathers do when they affirm that he is of one essence, and simply declare the genuine meaning of scripture? Theodore relates that Constantine, in opening their meeting, spoke as follows, quote, In the discussion of divine matters, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit stands recorded. The Gospels and apostolical writings with the oracles of the prophets fully show us the meaning of the deity. Therefore, laying aside discord, let us take the exposition of questions from the words of the Spirit. Unquote. There was none who opposed this sound advice, none who objected that the Church could add something of her own, that the Spirit did not reveal all things to the apostles, or at least that they did not deliver them to posterity, and so forth. If the point on which our opponents insist is true, Constantine first was in error in robbing the church of her power, and secondly, when none of the bishops rose to vindicate it, their silence was a kind of perfidy and made them traitors to ecclesiastical law. But since Theodore relates that they readily embraced what the emperor said, it is evident that this new dogma was then wholly unknown. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at... 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to ad at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word ad in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 free states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.